The following is sponsored by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. Log on AllianceNet.org and listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Modification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. I'm here as always with my friend and colleague, Reverend Todd Pruitt, a pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Todd, did your family once own a dry cleaning business? I uh, Yeah, my dad left the corporate world um, when I was like in um, sixth grade and opened up like four or five dry cleaners in Houston, Texas. That's I grew up working in in dry cleaners in Houston, Texas. Yeah. So if you ever have any questions about starch, about what it does to your shirts or, or about dry cleaning and that in dry cleaning, your clothes, your, your suits actually do get wet. It's just that it's called dry cleaning because they're dried in the same machine that they're washed with the chemicals. Oh, interesting, interesting. You know, people, people tune into this program having no idea the wealth of knowledge that they're going to be given. And I, I'm just glad that we can provide that. So, I'm yeah. amazed that you'd even have known that some shirts needed starching, given your hey. general uh, oh, listen, uh, appearance. Done. Listen, I, I, I have light starch in, in, in wow. all of my shirts that have buttons. Katrina has never recovered from you coming down to breakfast. Wearing that was it wife beater or something? It, it was a sleeveless T-shirt. It was a not a tank top t-shirt. because it I didn't was, want to overwhelm her. It deeply, well, it, it deeply traumatized. And, and I didn't want you to feel jealous. I didn't want to shame you. <laughs> and so I just showed off my guns and and nothing else. Okay, she was impressed. <laughs> I, the only reason I know you're into dry cleaning was I had uh-huh. a lunch yesterday at Dallas Baptist University, and somebody leaned across to me and said, "My mum knows Todd Pruitt," and I said. Well, you have my deepest sympathy. How come? She said, Todd Pruitt's dad gave my mum her very first job in his dry cleaning business. Okay, you got to tell me who that was. Guys, Sam Steele is his name, but I don't know what his mum's maiden name was. So interesting. Anyway, enough of this trivia. We need to. <laughs> Do we have a that. guest on here today? I, I want to, you know, guest. That's, we have uh, a very yeah. important guest. <laughs> a of mine, fellow, uh, fellow, fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, one of the handful of Protestants that uh, the EPPC uh, allows through its doors, uh, and also head of the Davenant Institute. We've had him on the program before. It is, of course, our friend Brad Littlejohn. Brad, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. And and I'm glad already because I have spent my entire life wondering how on earth dry cleaners <laughs> clean things and well, keep Brad, them dry. So now I know it's just just an advertising gimmick. There you go. Exactly. And okay. and if you if you if you want to know the secret behind one hour martinizing, you can ask me that. I mean, I'm listen. I, I can tell you all kinds. I think of we should. T- I think we should scrap the plan for the program and just. Dry cleaners went over your clothes with an eraser or something. 
<laughs> so anyway, we have Brad here today because we want to talk about a new book that he's, uh, the Davenant Institute have put out on a very important topic. And the topic is Protestant social teaching. Most of us are aware that we're moving into a period uh, of time in American culture and in Western culture in general, where many of the things that we were able as Christians to take for granted as social goods are rapidly disappearing. And one of the weaknesses that is exposed, I think, within the Christian church, particularly the Protestant Christian church, is how little time and effort we've spent over the last few hundred years in thinking about ethics and about social teaching from a Protestant perspective. Uh, in some ways, the values of Western culture, broadly speaking, and the values of Christianity had so many affinities. We weren't required to think things through from first principles a lot of time. That's no longer the case. Now, when one cannot even assume that biological sex tracks with what people call gender, we're finding ourselves in a very, very difficult position. And so it's great to see something happening that's beginning to recover a tradition of Protestant social teaching. Brad, I wonder if you'd like to tell us uh, about the more immediate inspirations for this particular volume and what you hope to achieve by it. Yeah, sure thing. And uh, I mean, let me first push back a little bit saying, you know, we haven't had to think about these things for, you know, a few hundred years. Um, it seems to me that the, the amnesia on this is really, um, you know, probably not much older than the, the 20th century. And if you go back, you go back to the 19th and 18th centuries, Protestants are being, are, are, are quite self-conscious about the need to put ethics near the center of the curriculum. In fact, I mean, you look at the old, um, the old seminary curricula and uh I, you know i think moral often you have moral theology would be like your capstone capstone course so you know i think this is, is a fairly recent amnesia and and part of our point in this book is to say we have a wealth of resources within our protestant tradition uh, and i use the word protestant tradition in the singular which of course might raise some eyebrows uh there are of course a multitude of Protestant traditions, but one of our contentions at the Davenant Institute is that at least if we talk about magisterial Protestantism, which was a recognizable thing distinct from the Radical Reformation, if we talk about magisterial Protestantism, there is a, a great deal of a shared tradition between Lutheran, Reformed, and, and Anglican, and uh, part of our mission at Davenant Institute is to kind of recover that, that shared DNA. So, uh, you know, the purpose for this book, you know, as you note, there's a, a great urgency in the present moment for Christians to be uh, formed with a strong sense of the Christian moral vision. I think every pastor needs to be equipped with the resources to answer all kinds of questions that just wouldn't have come across many pastors' desks, um, you know, even a, a decade or two ago. And that's that's partly the, the culture shifting that rapidly, and part of it is also the result of technology. You know, every Christian is kind of forced into being a, a frontline apologist, whether they want to be or not. Every you know, every because of social media, every Christian is finding objections, either theoretical objections to their faith or moral objections to like why do Christians you know why do Christians not want us to have any fun? You know, uh, why are Christians so judgmental? All these objections that the world is bringing. Uh, even if you're growing up in a, you know, pretty conservative Christian community saying, you know, 
in Iowa or something like that, uh, you are in a, some sense on the front lines of cultural battles that might be being fought in San Francisco and, and New York. So, mm-hmm. uh, every Christian is facing that every pastor is facing that We we recognize the need for a handbook and we wanted to make the case that, um, you know, people are familiar with the term Catholic social teaching. And, and I think one of the things that, one of the things that draws many of uh, Protestantism's best and brightest to to cross the Tiber is the sense that Catholics have this social teaching and Protestants don't. Catholics have answers to a lot of these pressing moral questions and Protestants don't. And we wanted to make the case, no, actually Protestants do. Uh, mm-hmm. If we if we dig back into our own tradition, we have the resources to speak intelligently about a biblical and natural law framework for thinking about just war, thinking about uh, abortion and marriage, thinking about um, issues around uh, death and euthanasia, uh, et cetera. Brad, we've been hearing this term bandied about a lot in a real negative way, uh, Christian nationalism. And of course, that's the new boogeyman from, you know, David French and uh, and company, uh, these Christian nationalists. Now, what's interesting is that Maybe they have, but I, I have yet to find any actual definition of what that means. And I, I, I had a conversation recently with somebody who was warning against uh, Christian nationalism because Christian nationalists really just care about acquiring political power. And I asked the question, is voting an acquisition of political power? And they, at that point, they, he honestly did not know how to answer me because I think he felt like, well, he was trapped at that point um, because voting absolutely is an act of, quote, political power. It is influence. It is exercising a measure of power. But I'm finding a lot of confusion on this to the extent, even, I mean, from folks in my own denomination, that speaking out publicly, for instance, in a in a school board meeting because of something going crazy in, in the public schools, that uh, that that might be sketchy. That might be kind of trying to seek political power. That kind of feels like Christian nationalism. And I'm finding that the vast majority of the the people I pastor, they don't necessarily have a name to put to it, but they're kind of living in that um, in that in that cleavage between. um, uh, uh, Well, you know, I'm 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 a Christian. I'm I'm here to love God, to love my neighbor, to make Christ known. And and so, does that mean I'm not supposed to say anything about a school policy that's going to put? Um, uh, pedophilic, you know, materials in the hands of of my kid, and in because we have that very issue in my town of Harrisonburg, Virginia, right now. And I wonder what you would would say. What would you say to the kind of the knee jerk use of this pejorative, you know, Christian nationalism dismissal of what I think I would look at and call well, that's just a Christian involved as a responsible citizen in the body politic. Yeah, it's it's a real problem because it's one of those things where um, kind of the critics got out there first and and coined the term. I mean, I'm right. sure there were advocates of Christian nationalism, you know, using that term. But I first came across it. The vast majority of people came across it when it started being used by, you know, the, uh, I mean, really in the aftermath of January 6th, the, the mainstream mm-hmm. media trying to say what's going you know, what what drove the Capitol riots? Oh, it's Christian nationalism. Right. And and then when you look at the attempt to define it, it's very it's very blurry and amorphous. And part of the way that they're getting a lot of the critical traction that they are is that 
there, there definitely is a demographic, a sizable demographic within American politics, uh, particularly on the right, that is not particularly religious at all. Right. Um, you know, may never go to church, and yet, uh, but is likely to be a Trump supporter and right. has this sort of cultural identity of Christianity mm-hmm. that uh, they, you know, that they're willing to fight for often in rather unchristian ways. Right. Right. Uh, and so then you have this kind of picture of this uh, aggressive, clearly that this person who is not manifesting Christian virtues at all, and who is cares more about politics than they do about faith. Yes. And that becomes the, the face of what's called Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. That thing is out there, um, and I know I know pastors who are who are dealing with it. Um, I don't know what name we want to give it, but I think it is very. The term Christian nationalism is confusing for sure. I mean, I have I have whole taxonomy of, of kind of how we can think about this. I mean, Christian nationalism could just mean you're a nationalist as opposed to say a globalist or a localist or right. something, and you're a Christian. Yeah. Um, but I think what those. Uh, those who are trying to positively appropriate the term, they would say, well, look, no, it means it means believing that it's possible to speak of something called a Christian nation and that that's a desirable thing. Now, what mm-hmm. do we mean by saying Christian nation is a desirable thing? Um, people immediately say, are you confusing the kingdom of God and the, and the uh, kingdom of this world? And obviously, Christ does say my kingdom is not of this world. But I think mm-hmm. many Christians just sort of leave it at that. Oh, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. Right. Therefore, my faith doesn't have any kind of worldly or political import. And so I'm just supposed to kind of, as you say, piously step back from all of this stuff. But my kingdom is not of this world, not from this world. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's, uh, it's not based in this world mm-hmm. is what Christ is saying. It's not saying it doesn't have an impact on this right. world. Right. And what we see in Protestant social teaching and Christian social teaching generally throughout all the, the centuries is, is an attempt to say you know, with our vision transformed by the scriptures, um, you know, Calvin speaks of the scriptures as spectacles, right? For reading, reading the world rightly. Yeah. Uh, so there is natural law, but we don't all have a great grasp of natural law. Mm-hmm. The scriptures give us a much clearer grasp of moral order. Regenerate conscience is, is capable of um, building a, a better society to live in than the unregenerate conscience. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Christians throughout the centuries have said, how do we think about war and peace? How do we think about marriage and sex? How do we think about, uh, you know, birth and death uh, f- from this standpoint informed by the Christian moral imagination? I think we forget right. so many things that we just sort of take for granted as, oh, well, we don't need, you know, like everybody thinks this. Well, no, it's not true that every everybody, to the extent that everybody still does think this it's largely because of centuries and centuries of Christian leavening and it's rapidly going out the window. Um, Mm -hmm. The fact that there's a big live debate over abortion, but pretty much no one is advocating for infanticide, but that, you know, that's (laughs) uh, if you look at world history, uh, that's pretty standard outside of the leavening influence of of Christian social teaching. Right. And the whole idea of just war and sort of distinguishing between non-combatants and combatants and, um, and doing what is necessary to attain peace, but going no further. That's not how war worked in the right. ancient world. That's not how war works generally. So um, I think I think what we're seeing now increasingly is the that inheritance of centuries that we thought we could take for granted for a few decades, suddenly we can't take that for granted. Uh, and things are being 
forced on us through political institutions that are mm-hmm. radically anti-human. And mm-hmm. so, um, sure, if you want to say, you know, that our politics should be, you know, we want to, you know, a humane politics rather than a Christian politics, fine. But um, I think history has shown that you need the leavening influence of Christianity to have a humane politics. And right. Christians need to be unafraid of speaking up from the moral vision that they have uh, shaped by scripture and their tradition um, and taking part in these political debates. Of course, politics can become an idol. Many people are drawn to politics for the wrong reasons, but many people also run away from politics for the wrong mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Apologetic question, uh, Brad, and it, not an apologetic question as in apologetics for non-Christians, but apologetics for Christians. Use the term natural law there, because we're both involved the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Natural law is a, a significant part of what the EPPC stands for. And yet, mention the term natural law in a lot of Protestant circles, and you'll get immediate negative reaction, you'll get pushback. Right. How would you present natural law to somebody who is skeptical when they hear natural law they think catholicism or they think human autonomy or autonomous unfallen reason how would you go about making a good case for protestants taking seriously the concept of natural law yeah well first i just make the historical point that the the protestant rejection of natural law is really kind of a post-world war one phenomenon maybe lasted for about 75 years and and now scholars protestant scholars have been rediscovering the natural law in droves in the last couple decades and if you go back to the time of the reformation themselves uh the reformers are are totally unafraid of using the concept Mm -hmm. and indeed uh use it extensively as a historical point i'd say it's just sort of obviously the case that most protestants throughout the centuries have not thought this was a problem but okay we're protestants here you know maybe we're not going to be convinced by the appeal to history let's make the appeal to scripture and um, if you're going to say, if you're going to say, well, I'm skeptical of natural law because I think that scripture alone should be our guide. Okay, well, let's go to scripture alone and see what it says, right? And what it says right there in Romans 2, 14 through 15 is um, that the Gentiles who are without the law still do the works of the law because they have the law written on their hearts. Um, and in Romans 1, right before that, it says that um, God's invisible attributes were manifest through the things that were made. And the obligation to worship God uh, and basic Christian moral obligations were were evident to us. And we suppress that truth and ungodliness, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a suppression of something that is available. And it's it's never, if natural law were indeed entirely suppressed, then how bad would people actually be, right? Um, You know, everybody um, runs out and saves a baby that's about to be run over by a car, right? It's just like, well, of course, you're going to, you know, save the baby, right? even bad negligent parents very you know very very few parents are actively abusing their child and those that are abusing their child are usually maybe doing so when they're drunk or angry and not like 100 percent of the time right so we have we have a grasp of like um what it means to love our fellow man uh even when depraved by sin and we need of course we need the scriptures to um elucidate our understanding of of moral order and we need the spirit to regenerate our hearts to make us capable of following through on that uh but that moral order is real and it is to some extent apparent the the protestant who says okay sure there is this moral order written onto the 
you know, just built into creation. Certain things just are wrong by virtue of how God created us. And sure, you know, most people don't, you know, most people don't torture kittens for fun. So I guess they get it on some level. But how useful is it really? I mean, I just said earlier, like through much of human history, people have, I mean, they, they do save babies from being run over by a car, maybe, but they also practice infanticide. So how useful is it? Well, I would say um, if we think that the primary use of natural law is to provide us with some neutral standard to deliberate politically with unbelievers, I think I think that's misguided because I, I think that isn't true. I think that, again, many of the things that we might think of as neutral standards are actually the result of centuries and centuries of Christian leavening influence. Um, but I do think that within the church, um, natural law is extremely important. And people might say, well, why? We have we have the Bible, mm -hmm. so why would we even need to appeal to natural law? And I would say uh, because um, it's important for Christians to see their moral commitments within a comprehensive framework uh, rather than just as a set of, you know, just a list of do's and don'ts, right? It's not that God just gives us a list of do's and don'ts because, you know, he's a you know grumpy old guy in the sky who doesn't want us to have fun um no the the commands that we have in scripture are make sense within this larger picture of what it means to be human and the um the sanctified imagination is not does not merely me read moral rules out of scripture but the sanctified imagination is is equipped to see that moral order um within creation more fully right and uh and to have that more holistic grasp of what it means to be human and once you start to do that you start to see that scripture itself is constantly referencing that right scripture is saying go to the ant thou sluggard right Learn, look at the world and then learn something about how you're supposed to behave by looking at the world right yeah right i wonder if and, and i'm speaking not only on my behalf but i know i think every pastor i i have fairly frequent conversations with um what would you say to the Christian layperson who is troubled by, say, they've got kids in the school system? Maybe they're not in a position to, or at least they're, they're, they're they think they're not in a position to get them out and, and find another option. I'm I'm in a community which is really strange because most people don't can't find Harrisonburg, Virginia, on a map, and yet we've been on we've been mentioned in CNN. Um, as having one of the most liberal um, inclusivity policies in the country in our in our public school system, more liberal than the state standards that come out of Northern Virginia. And so um, if you've got a parent who's who thinks, well, I ought to do something, but maybe maybe they're hesitant because they maybe they think to to do this to maybe overstep bounds as a Christian. Maybe that's kind of. Um, yucky, maybe to to, to do that. Um, what would you say to a, to a Christian in our culture, given what we have uh, available to us in terms of our governing authorities, which ultimately are a piece of paper, not a person? Um, you know, constitutionally available to us and that kind of thing. How how would you counsel them to think through really good, God honoring, Christ centered action in a local level? For instance, in dealing. With, with school board issues and how would you, how would you allay any concerns that they have because some of their friends have, you know, really kind of come down hard on, you know, we, we, we either need to proclaim Christ or 
do these other things, but we can't do both. And I, and I see that often on Twitter, that kind of division made, but, but how do you talk to the, to the angst filled Christian layperson who, who wants to be involved, but aren't sure if they should be or what that should look like? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I mean, the first thing to say is, uh, I mean, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're asking the question because I think that many Christians might think the response is simply to retreat, you know, maybe right, we don't want our own kids in public schools, but we're going to homeschool them. We're going to start these Christian schools yeah. and just let the, you know, let it, let the rest of it burn down. And right. I think uh, that's, <laughs> that's the short-sighted solution because uh, for the foreseeable future, we are going to need public schools. Um unless we're mm-hmm. going to have some kind of church run education system that's going to provide something for, for everybody. There are people who are going to need public schools and they're going to be turning out the majority of our fellow citizens around us. And so we're going to be living with those people right. and we're going to live in a society shaped by that education. And so if we care about the future for our kids, we also need to care about the future for those kids. Um, you know, even just to put in those selfish terms. But then, of course, you can, I mean, you don't have to put in those selfish terms. We need to love our neighbors and our neighbors are going to those schools. And so if if we if there are things that we can do uh, to prevent their minds and souls being poisoned, we should we should look for those things to do. And I think part of the problem is um, and this is me coming back to the question about natural law is. Um, one of the helpful things about natural law framework is you go to scripture not looking for a comprehensive guidebook for Christian citizenship because you realize, oh, the Bible isn't trying to give a comprehensive guidebook because the Bible, again, is addressed to people who have some moral knowledge by looking at the world, right? Um, and so, with that in mind, I think that helps us a bit because too many Christians are trying to go to scripture for exact guidance what it means to be a citizen in a modern democracy and that there, <laughs> there isn't a guidance right the problem in the new testament our issue is um the you're talking about people who are totally disempowered politically uh within the roman empire for the most part now i think paul is an interesting example paul was a roman citizen and you see paul using his roman citizenship saying how can i leverage this to get as much access for the gospel as possible so i think that's an example to come back to in a second but, you know, something like Romans 13 is addressed largely to, like, you know, submit to the governing authorities because you don't have much ability to do much more than that. Um, and then the Old Testament, you know, you've got a theocratic monarchy. And so, you know, as our example, should we follow the example of Jehu, you know, going around slaying the idolaters? Well, no, probably not that. We have an opportunity to do something between those two, which is um, exercise some impact upon the political order in which we find ourselves through all the avenues that are available to us as citizens, you know, voting, running for school boards, running for higher office, uh, filing lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we have to ask is, I I think the mistake for many Christians is maybe to go to that New Testament context and say, well, you know, Jesus and the disciples just kind of, they just kind of grin and bore it. And so we should just grin and bear it. Uh, But that's taking the wrong context as a framework. Certainly, we need to always have the mind of Christ in terms of not putting our final hope in political engagement, um, being willing, you know, expecting to suffer and being willing to suffer patiently, being primarily motivated by the needs of others rather than self-aggrandizement, which is often what politics is about. 
So certainly bring the mind of Christ into your political engagement, but ask, but ultimately the moral teaching of the New Testament is over and over and over. Um, seek to love one another, seek to love one another. And if we're trying to, again, love our neighbors and our neighbors' kids are being subjected to sex change operations, um, then loving your neighbor means looking for what any politically available ways of um, changing those structures. You know, we, we need to be wary of the temptations that are there, but I, I just think for, the, for most Christians, the danger of abdication right now is greater than the danger of over-engagement. Yeah, I, I, I'm troubled by the um, anachronisms that are involved oftentimes. Well, Jesus and the apostles didn't, you know, weren't engaged politically. Well, right. Well, they, they, they couldn't be. Um, and yes, there's a risk of, of doing that in, in a way that doesn't honor, honor the Lord, of course. But um, uh, some of the arguments for um, almost a, a pietistic quietism come out of um, just some really bad hermeneutics and not doing her history well. And so Carl mentioned that at the beginning of the program, when we introduced our guest, Brad Littlejohn, this uh, new book from the Davenin Institute, Protestant Social Teaching. And we've kind of been delving into that subject in this uh, conversation. And of course, there is far more we could get into. I will say uh, the book is definitely worth picking up. Um, I, I received mine several days ago, and I started dipping into a couple of the chapters and some really good material um, in that book that I think will help you navigate some of the things we've been talking about on this program, but of course, many others, but all tied to the fact that actually Protestantism has a pretty rich history of, of teaching Christians how to be involved practically in the world around us. And uh, this book will help you think through that. And so, uh, Brad, thanks for uh, being on with us. Thanks for the Davenant Institute and the fact that they uh, kind of help uh, sponsor uh, what Mortification of Spin does. I mean, basically, you all own us at this point, right? You kind of run all this now. Not, not, uh, not really, but, uh, um, but we do thank you for uh, for being on and for the thoughtfulness um, uh, that you engage in as we as we address these important issues. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. My pleasure. Yeah. And um, if you get a chance, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and you can register to win a copy of this excellent book, Protestant Social Teaching. Um, the, uh, it's got a wide variety of contributors and um, would be would be worth your time to pick up and, and to begin reading. And so come on board and, and win, uh, register to win a copy of that. And if you're there and uh, you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to uh, provide good and thoughtful content for Christians, then you can do that as well. Until then, um, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll uh, be happy to talk to you all uh, a couple of weeks from now. Bye-bye. We're men, we're men in tights. We roam around the forest looking for heights. We're men, we're men in tights. We run from the rich and give to the poor, that's right. We may look like sissies, but what would you say or else we'll put out your lights? We're men, we're men in tights, always on guard defending the people's rights. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Ladies are hard to get on. Let's face it, you've got to be a man to wear tights. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is thankful for your support. The Alliance is a coalition of Christians with a passion for the truth of God's Word, upholding biblical doctrine, sharing the gospel, and equipping Christians with trustworthy teaching through broadcasts, publishing, and events. Your generous gifts enable the Alliance to share the message of ultimate hope, which originates not in man, but in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. As we approach year-end, we need your assistance to raise the funding necessary to finish the year strong and reach even more people in the year ahead. Please join us and help underwrite this teaching and encouraging ministry. Visit AllianceNet.org donate to make a gift online. That's AllianceNet.org slash donate or call 1-800-488-1888. Please consider sending a gift now when the need is so great. Thank you 